Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Cullum Clark and Christian T. Blackwell. Cullum is the director of the Bush Institute SMU Economic Growth Initiative and an adjunct professor of economics at Southern Methodist University. Within the Economic Growth Initiative, Cullum leads the Bush Institute's work on domestic economic policy and economic growth. Before joining the Bush Institute and SMU, Cullum worked in the investment industry for 25 years. Cullum earned a BA in history from Yale University in 1989 and an AM in political science from Harvard University in 1993 and a PhD in economics from SMU in May 2017. Christian is the managing partner of Opus Fabio Innovation Department, where he has a particular interest in the challenges of innovation for universities, governments, and larger corporates. Prior to Opus Fabio, Christian was a founder and investor in several startup companies, an investment banker with Deutsche Bank in New York and London, and treasurer for the international operations of GTE slash Verizon. Christian has a BA in political science and international affairs from Rice University and an MBA in international finance from the Thunderbird School of Global Management. Christian was accepted to Rice at age 15, and he earned both degrees by age 21. In addition to innovation, Christian is interested in international political economy and the performing arts. Christian currently is a member of the Executive Committee on the Board of the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations, the American Council on Germany, the Atlantic Bruki, the George W. Bush Institute Working Group on North American Competitiveness, the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, the John Tower Center for Political Studies, and the SMU Cox School Associate Board. And with those extremely impressive backgrounds, welcome to the podcast, Colin and Christian. It's great to be here. Thank you very much, Lisa. Well, thank you both so much for taking part in the podcast. I'm really excited to have you both here. I wanted to start off, you are two of the authors of the report published by the George W. Bush Institute, SMU, and Opus Favio, entitled The Innovation Impact of U.S. Universities, Rankings and Policy Conclusions, that was published in June 2020. However, before we get into the details about the report, Cullum and Christian, for those of our listeners who are not aware, can you tell us a little bit about the George W. Bush Institute and Opus Favio? Sure. Colin here, I can start with that, Lisa. Uh, The George W. Bush Presidential Center is, uh, uh, like other presidential centers, this came into being after President Bush left office. Uh, It exists essentially to uh, address some of the most pressing issues of our time, really starting from the values that animated President and Mrs. Bush's uh, public service. Uh, the president, the, the, the George W. Presidential Center includes uh, a museum and library that the public can visit, but also includes the George W. Bush Institute, where I work. Uh, we are an action-oriented policy organization focused on a variety of areas, both domestic and global. Among other things, we are very focused on uh, issues around promoting opportunity and economic mobility in the U.S. economy, which is what I work on. And... Um, I'll go ahead and uh, chime in for Opus Fabio. Uh, so Opus Fabio is uh, primarily a venture development uh, boutique. We look for opportunities to build companies, often in conjunction with university researchers and tech transfer offices. Um, and we've been around for not quite 10 years, but we started out as a research project uh, around 10 years ago, looking at uh, innovation broadly uh, and how we might be able uh, to throw our hat in the ring and, and help out and uh, try to foster innovation. And that theme of fostering innovation really is, is core to uh, how we think about both venture development and, and also the broader theme of, of what we're trying to do. So um, uh, we have, uh, throughout our life as a firm, we have invested time and money into, um, into research uh, and all of these themes that we're going to talk about today. 
So can you tell me where the idea came from to look at the innovation impact of U.S. universities and how your two organizations ended up working together on it? Uh, yeah, so I'll start with that and and uh, Colin can, can uh, chime in. So um, having this longstanding interest in, in uh, innovation and having started to talk to tech transfer professionals and university leaders in various places around the country, um, we started uh, thinking about uh, one, how uh, how one can define innovation, and then what ultimately the goals of all of these innovation policies might be. And uh, we uh, started by looking at best practices among U.S. Uh, top-tier research institutions uh, in tech transfer, and we put out a paper on that. Uh, and then we started bringing together focus groups and interviewing uh, both leadership uh, and tech transfer professionals, as well as other stakeholders at a number of universities around the country and uh, outside the United States as well. Uh, and from that, we came to the idea of innovation impact. Uh, the idea that that uh, innovation is a, a term that's bandied, out, uh, bandied about quite a bit, but the, the theme of how do you foster innovation ultimately comes down to impact, creating impact. And university leaders, other leaders can think about what impact means and, and how they might define it for themselves, but we thought that was pretty um, pretty key. And uh, so with that, we uh, ended up um, thinking about metrics, how might how one might measure innovation impact, and learned about the uh, autumn data set, the Association of University Technology Managers. And we were pretty impressed by the data that they compiled. And uh, we, again, in conjunction with focus groups, came up with uh, a um, way to measure innovation impact, and we put together a privately published uh, study and ranking of universities on innovation impact. Uh, and that was several years ago, maybe five or six years ago now. Uh, from that, we ended up doing a survey of tech transfer professionals. We actually surveyed um, uh, the heads of tech transfer, uh, VPs of research, and provosts uh, at universities across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we were fortunate on our team to have a number of people who had uh, years and years of experience doing survey work, and um, we came up with a pretty good, uh, pretty good survey, I think, and uh, ended up surprisingly with uh, a very high response rate. You tend to expect a very low response rate. We had a very high response rate, and um, and we were uh, uh, polling people on these same themes: what works, what doesn't, what are you trying to accomplish, et cetera. Um, so from that, we um, continue to think about um, how can uh, universities get better. Uh, and it's not just a theme for universities. This comes out in the paper, and I know Colm's going to want to talk about this as well. But uh, it's also a theme for broader leadership, whether that's uh, national leadership or state, uh, municipal, um, board level, board of trustees at a university, or the head of a tech transfer office. So this is a, these are issues that go up and down uh, the chain, so to speak. And um, uh, Colm and I have been friends for many years, and he had um, uh, been a great sounding board on some of these themes. Um, I also had done work with the Bush Institute as part of something that they have, which is the um, uh, a group that they put together called the North American Working Group on, uh, or I'm sorry, the Working Group on North American Competitiveness, uh, looking at, at um, the NAFTA region at that time and uh, broad, broad themes of, of um, competitiveness. And of course, innovation ended up being something that uh, I was thinking a lot about in that context. And so everything coalesced. Um, Colm ended up joining the Bush Institute. And um, uh, I don't know if I convinced him or if he decided uh, 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 he would get involved despite me, but we ended up uh, <laughs> being able to collaborate. And uh, it really has been a pleasure. Uh, I'll, I'll um, just add one last thing, which is, in redoing our ranking, what we were really aiming for is, and this is why we were so excited about the collaboration with Colm and, and the team at the Bush Institute, um, we were aiming for raising the bar on um, the kind of econometric and statistical analysis of what we were doing. Um, what we had done was pretty good. It was actually very similar. It predated the Milken uh, Institute study. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners uh, are familiar with that. Um, but the methodology was fairly similar. I think ours was maybe a little bit better, but it was it was quite similar. Uh, and we really wanted to raise the bar, and and uh, Colin was a great partner to help us do that. So 
um, column. It, does that reflect your memory as well? Or <laughs> uh, very, very well. I, uh, you all, you definitely have a better memory than me. So I'll defer. <laughs> uh, at the at the George W. Bush Institute, we are very focused on uh, the challenge of creating prosperous, high opportunity places. We really start from the idea that innovation, wealth creation, prosperity, and opportunity are, are things that happen in particular places and then we hope radiate outwards. And we also believe that uh, institutions of all kinds, including anchor knowledge generating institutions like, like universities and research-oriented healthcare institutions, uh, have a really large role to play. They have a large role to play in driving the overall um, growth rate, the innovation rate of the economy, but they also have a lot to play in local area prosperity and in creating local opportunity. Because it turns out, uh, Lisa, uh, according to a a great many studies by economists, that um, innovation is something that, that, uh, uh, it's interesting in in our very interconnected age, what a short distance ideas typically travel from their moment of inception to their initial commercialization. And knowledge spillovers from higher ed institutions to the business sector uh, are very disproportionately local. So we really come at this from the point of view that, um, uh, in a sense, maximizing what we call the innovation impact of our uh, great American uh, knowledge generating institutions uh, is a key path towards creating, if you will, a more inclusive capitalism, uh, towards spreading the, oppor- the the geography of opportunity beyond just a, you know, a handful of obvious kind of urban nodes on the coast. Uh, so from our point of view, it's essentially uh, part of a larger uh, program that we write about a lot. And we intend to keep coming back to this issue of knowledge generating institutions again and again. So that's, that's why we were excited. And I think uh, uh, in addition to that, I guess I would say a couple other things. One is uh, uh, Christian Nettie, we've been friends a long time. Uh, and I was uh, well aware of the work they'd already done, which I thought was very innovative and uh, well worth uh, building on. I also had a little bit of real world experience despite being a, uh, you know, a think tank person and uh, academic and was uh, for a decade on the board of a uh, Dallas based biotech company uh, that uh, in licensed its key technologies from um, uh, from major medical centers and really had the opportunity to watch this sort of process of taking ideas from the academy into uh, well, into impacting the real world. Uh, I had a chance to watch that very up close. So this is an area I've been fascinated about for for years. So terrific to be involved in this project. Now, turning to your report, it sets out new a new set of rankings for U.S. research universities and institutions for uh, innovation impact. And you've mentioned that a couple of times already. Can you tell us specifically what innovation impact means and how you constructed your rankings and then ultimately how you rank these institutions? Yeah, I guess what what I would say, Lisa, is, okay. first thing we did was basically uh, arrive at the idea uh, that innovation impact is, we hope, a more somewhat more narrow uh, and manageable concept than just plain innovation. Uh, Innovation, for example, in a higher ed setting could mean like process innovation in how they teach class. I, I would argue that process innovation in teaching and learning is a really, really important thing, but it wasn't the thing we wanted to measure. Yeah. So uh, the thing that we wanted to measure, in a sense, is the success of higher ed institutions in essentially um, having their research findings, the output of their their whole this whole research enterprise cross over the walls of academia into the wider world, into the wider economy, the wider society. Um, so uh, in way and in ways that directly drive technological progress, prosperity in the wider economy. Um, and, uh, so, you know, so actualizing this a little bit, um, I think one thing that we did that was maybe a little bit different than some of the things that had gone before, uh, was to get pretty explicit about what in economics we would call the, the production function of innovation impact. The idea that there's inputs that go into a process, there's a process that kind of cranks along and then outcome outputs. And we wanted to be, um, very clear that we were measuring a set of, what were, in our view, very likely outputs, recognizing that knowledge generation is a complex sort of uh, sort of thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, the outputs of uh, one innovative process obviously become the in- inputs to the next innovation process. We get that. But nonetheless, at least we had the idea that we were going to try to measure outputs. So what did we do? Um, we looked at a great many possible variables. 
Um, and we boiled it down to nine and we created a set of composite uh, scores using some various statistical methods based on these nine. Um, the nine all within, uh, within what we consider to be um, reasonable measures of the output of what the universities are actually trying to accomplish. So, um, so what are they? Well, we started with the uh, Autumn, the Association of University Technology Managers uh, data set, uh, which has a number of, of great measures. We ended up using five of those. They had to do with um, uh, licensing income, with patents issued, uh, uh, with um, uh, new businesses started, spinouts as we as we call them. A couple of variations on those on those metrics, but also in contrast to some of the efforts that have gone before in this space. Uh, we went beyond that and added uh, four other variables that um, aren't in the autumn data set, but we think, we think, let's say, broaden the definition of innovation impact in ways that we hope are intuitive to people who care about this, like university presidents, like, you know, provosts. Um, and so, for example, uh, we looked at research impact type variables uh, and the, the particular two that we were able to quantify. One is um, uh, patent citations. So uh, academic work being cited in actual issued patents. And the other was uh, paper citations. So uh, papers being cited in other papers, both of which are measurable in a variety of ways, including from Google searches. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then we also looked at uh, essentially the output of graduates of uh, graduates in particular STEM fields, essentially, uh, which we think is clearly something university presidents would care about. And, and particularly when they're in STEM fields, uh, our view would be that uh, that is part and parcel of the knowledge generating process. Um, so a little bit broader than um, just the uh, autumn variables, which tend to be very much the province of the of the tech transfer office at a university. But we took the view, look, we, we, we think tech transfer offices have a really important role to play, but we really wanna reach the presidents of universities. We wanna reach deans, we wanna reach provosts and convey to them that innovation impact is everybody's business at the university. Uh, so so yeah. that, that's kind of how we put this to work. And I'll just, I, I wanna circle back to um, the, the term innovation impact because um, uh, especially, you know, hearing Colm walk through the individual components, um, uh, there certainly is a lot of work and analysis into this that, that went into this. Um, and yet the term innovation impact can really sound like a cliche. It, it, it can sound like a throwaway. Uh, and in fact, uh, sometimes when I describe this project to people, I say, yes, uh, what we tried to do is uh, we thought about one cliche, innovation, and we added a second, impact, and we put them together and we, we thought that we had something uh, even better still. Uh, and yet what's interesting is bringing uh, and, and having been the person kind of shepherding the team together and, and recruiting people to this project, um, bringing together lots of smart people to look at this and think about it. Everyone always thinks this is just a silly cliche. And yet when you get really smart people like Cullum thinking through this, everyone comes back to, whoa, that that actually is quite meaningful. Um, and this is a good way to think about it. Uh, so um, I, I guess I would ask our listeners to please look past the cliche, or at least to believe me when I say that uh, one cliche plus a second cliche equals uh, not three or two, but uh, uh, something that is not a cliche. Maybe they cancel each other the out. Question, as they, as they, uh, people oftentimes point out, uh, the one thing about cliches is, is that they are typically uh, true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you went through this ranking and you ranked all these institutions and you came up with your top 25. Can you tell us a little bit about those top 25 universities in your ranking sure. for overall impact? We were limited, Lisa, to um, universities and research institutions that filed data with uh, the Association of University Technology Man Managers, Autumn. We wish more did uh, because while we used other variables, we did depend on variables that we have no way of getting other than from the Autumn data set. Um, and it's a terrific data set. Autumn, Autumn asks a lot of really great questions, does it year after year. So it's a uh, it's 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 really an invaluable resource. More universities ought to do it. Now, the good news is, of the I think we know the university landscape well enough to know that of the U.S. research institutions uh, that are likely to rank relatively high, almost all are in this data set. There's a couple quirky exceptions, uh, but almost all are, are here. So we for 195 institutions, we were able to generate um, this composite output score, uh, our composite measure of innovation impact. We also 
here's another, uh, I think, um, uh, slightly novel thing we did before we comment on highly ranking institutions. I think we need to say what we're ranking them on. Um, uh, keep in mind what I just said, said a little bit earlier about the idea that we start with the idea of a production function, turning inputs to outputs. Well, some uh, measures that have been used in the past, we would argue conflate inputs and outputs. It's kind of like if you were looking at a company and you took a, an average of how many employees they have and what their profits are, right? It, it doesn't, in our view, make a lot of sense. So, um, so what we did is create what we thought of as a, uh, as a uh, comparable across universities output score, a composite score. Uh, and we can rank them just, just by actual output, where clearly a really big institution is likely to have more output than a really small institution. But then secondly, um, we took those scores and basically then um, adjusted them for uh, research spending, recognizing our, our, our basic premise is that the total amount of dollars that you know, institutions are spending on research, which they do report to Autumn, is a kind of proxy for all of the inputs going in, recognizing that not all inputs strictly have a dollar value. Nonetheless, we thought it was close enough. And therefore, we were able to produce the second ranking, which is a, a, an innovation impact productivity ranking, how good the institutions are or have been in, over the five years that we looked at the data uh, in turning inputs into outputs. So those are two really different uh, rankings. And um, I, I don't know, maybe Christian, we can divide labor. I could say something about the, the first batch or the second. You want to um, do that? Well, um, let me just chime in before we do that, because I do want to add one other um, piece here, which is um, we started with the idea of, of innovation impact. And this is not a perfect measure of innovation impact. This is a pretty good one, um, but it is not perfect. And we'd love for it to get better either through our own efforts or, or other people's. Um, uh, but I think that, that's important. Uh, so when you think, well, why didn't you do this or why didn't you do that? There are certainly trade-offs, data availability, et cetera. Um, uh, and uh, I would say, again, this is sort of a, an imperfect, uh, although very good um, uh, uh, process or analysis to try to measure this thing called innovation impact. So if we want to talk about the rankings, Lisa, shall we do that for a second? Yeah, that sounds great. Good. Well, okay. So based on what I, what we just said, we want to separate the, let's say, overall innovation impact from the, from the productivity scores, so-called. So overall, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it, but here's a, here's a basic limitation in the data that we sure wish these institutions would figure out how to help us and the world uh, get past this limitation. Some big state university systems, but not all of them, report data to Autumn only at the system level, okay? That could be many campuses. Um, now, um, uh, I would encourage all of the specific campuses out there not only to uh, collect their own internal data, but indeed to publish it so they actually have some sense of how they're doing. I'll echo that. Yeah, I'm, it, this is just a, a really, really big deal. And and I, even more broadly, the um, the autumn data is just excellent data, and it is very much uh, data that is needed by lawmakers, by national leaders, um, state legislators, um, boards of trustees, et cetera. It is um, done with hard work of tech transfer offices, and they know about it, and they look at that information, but it's really the higher-ups who, who aren't paying attention to it and, and need to. The other thing I'll add is that um, as we've talked to tech transfer offices, sometimes there's a fear, well, if we look at rankings, uh, this may somehow be a negative for us, or it'll make us look bad, or what have you. And the point that we've made in uh, in lots of conversations, and and I think people have realized that that uh, this is a, a solid way of looking at it, is um, this is a real opportunity to leapfrog. Uh, this is an opportunity to get better. And uh, as uh, as we'll describe later, this is actually good for tech transfer offices. Uh, uh, and and the results of, of this study certainly would would argue that you need to uh, invest more resource resources into tech transfer offices. Um, so uh, uh, autumn data is important. Universities ought to make sure they are reporting consistently and check those results, uh, et cetera. Um, and those systems that are not reporting at the university level, boy, they sure should be. Um, and the the member institutions of those systems are really losing out by not getting that data out there. 
you know, I, since, since we're on that point, before getting into the individual institutions, I'd love to add one additional point to what Christian said, Lisa. Um, we, we live in a time, I would argue, uh, when our higher ed institutions are under a lot of scrutiny. Uh, when there's a lot of, um, you know, folks in maybe legislatures who really wonder about the, um, you know, the, 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 the returns to some of the appropriations they make to the higher ed system, uh, where there's a lot of skeptics. And, um, and what, you know, I would argue that uh, if the public sector is funding a great amount of uh, research, uh, that it's probably um, in their own self-interest and, and wise, as well, as well as just sort of good citizenship for institutions to kind of report to the world and how well they're doing and stewarding those resources. But among other things, it is enlightened self-interest because where they are successful, they will help to convince at least some of the skeptics that this is a good investment. We strongly, we who have followed this closely, strongly believe it's a good investment. We hope our report adds to that discussion, but we're one little voice all of the higher ed institutions together uh, can be a really strong voice. Anyhow. And this is this is true for both basic and applied research. I think we might talk a little bit more about that later. But we think that that it, it flows to both. So it, it's not a question of, well, if we report this stuff and, and if uh, state legislators look at this data, they're not going to invest in, in uh, basic research. It's all going to be about applied. Uh, uh, we certainly think it... it uh, uh, is a rising tide that helps uh, all boats, uh, both basic and applied research. Yeah, I mean, we, we can look at the returns. For, I know we might be getting off into a bit of a digression, but we do note in the report, um, uh, just very simply from autumn uh, data, just just if we look only at the um, license uh, licensing revenues coming into the all of our 195 institutions for which we have data and divide that by um, uh, by the total amount they're spending on research, just the license income has has averaged over the five years that we looked at it in the mid-teens, about 4% of what was going in each year, which I would consider to be a pretty good return considering that they aren't mostly in it for the license revenues, right? Uh, I mean, they're mostly in it for the larger social good that comes from the actual research, most of which, like most forms of you know knowledge generation, isn't going to be captured in any kind of license revenue by the people who did the work. So, um, so I would say if you look at from you know from the I mean, I, we're we're based in Texas. If you think about it from the point of view of you know the Texas legislature investing resources in state universities in the state of Texas, um, surely the actual contribution to the state economy is a heck of a lot larger than the four percent maybe that comes uh, back in the form of license revenues. So I think this has been a really extended drum roll. Exactly. And, uh, you want to you want to get to the rankings? Uh, yeah. So why don't you do all of? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so, go um, for it. Okay. So first, so first of all, uh, the 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 rankings for overall impact. It helps to be large. The single, the number one is the University of California system, which is by far the the biggest spender and the biggest generator of innovation impact. They spend about five billion dollars a year, and generate enormous impact with that. The second biggest is the University of Texas system, uh, another large system. Uh, so those maybe those aren't very surprising when you consider that the inputs are so large. Um, when you go beyond that, what you actually find is uh, of our top 25, um, uh, 16 are large state institutions, uh, in more cases than not reporting at the system level, but in some cases at the, end of, at the level of the flagship campus of the state system. There are a number of great institutions that play a really large role in, in generating innovation impact in our economy. They include institutions uh, such as the universities of, of Michigan, the University of Washington, Florida, Minnesota, uh, Maryland. Um, there are several others in that list of 16. And nine out of the top 25, including number three ranked MIT, are private institutions, uh, typically uh, kind of large, although not so large as the largest state institutions. So um, highly ranking institutions in, in addition to MIT include Columbia University, Stanford University, the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Johns Hopkins University. Um, so I think I've largely rounded out the top 10, uh, but, um, uh, but size counts, but size isn't the whole story, which is what we probably wanna say when we come to the productivity rankings. So the productivity ranking in many ways is the, the, the more interesting one. And um, we were hopeful for some surprises here and, and we found them. Um, uh, and uh, what we did uh, in looking at this is we thought it would be a little more useful to 
break the um, universities into groups or these research institutions into groups um, or buckets. And we uh, did that by research dollars, uh, uh, first off. So largest, uh, mid-sized and uh, smaller. And we tried to get um, the um, uh, institutions to be uh, similarly sized groups. Uh, and then we broke out, there were other autumn reporting entities where we had good data. So we broke those out as well. Uh, pure medical schools that are not directly associated with a larger university, or at least are not reporting as a larger university. Uh, and then pure uh, uh, healthcare institutions that are doing research, places um, like uh, Special Surgery in New York uh, or um, the uh, Cold Spring Harbor Lab uh, um, out on Long Island. Uh, so those ended up being the five buckets. Um, but focusing in on the um, uh, the universities uh, among largest, number one was University of Florida, uh, which, again, was a bit of a surprise. We all know the Gatorade story uh, in tech transfer, uh, but there was a lot more happening in Florida. And, and I'll let uh, Colm talk maybe a little bit about um, uh, our um, uh, interview with the um, the people. And, and we did ended up doing a little more research about the uh, leaders here. And I'll let uh, Colm talk a little bit more about that. Um, second, uh, among large research universities was uh, University of Utah. Uh, if you spend any time around these themes, uh, Utah comes up quite a bit, so we weren't completely surprised there. Uh, third, Caltech. Uh, fourth, uh, University of Chicago. Five, NC State. Uh, six, Columbia. Seven, Northwestern. Eight, NYU. Nine, Purdue. And ten, University of Georgia. And again, some surprises, and I, I do encourage people to go download the report, uh, and we've got both an executive summary as, as well as the full report on uh, both the Bush Institute side as well as Opus Fabio's site. But um, thinking about surprises, uh, one is um, a University of Georgia for me was a bit of a surprise, and they actually uh, did well in our prior ranking also. Um, everyone, when you think about Georgia, at least when you're not from Georgia, uh, in tech transfer, everybody talks about Georgia Tech. Uh, and we were surprised in our prior ranking that Georgia came out ahead of Georgia Tech. And uh, and here we go again. Uh, Georgia did uh, uh, very well. So uh, I think another thing here is to think about rivalries and this idea of leapfrogging. And uh, if you are sitting in the tech transfer office at Northwestern, and I've been fortunate to meet some people who came out of the Northwestern uh, tech transfer office who are uh, incredibly uh, bright, very hardworking people, you should not and probably aren't too happy about being behind NC State. And so this is a way to rally resources to your cause. Colin, do you want to take mid-size? Yeah, we'll I, I think one thing I'd like also to say about the productivity uh, scores is that um, the, the differences across institutions in how productive they are, these differences are very large. So um, there's a lot of different ways we can express how large they are, but here's here's one that I think hopefully would make sense to some of, of your listeners, Lisa. Um, in my experience, universities all really, really like the idea of climbing through the rankings, right? Uh, U.S. News or otherwise. Well, what we find is, uh, generally speaking, uh, if a university can go from being average within its size group, average in terms of productivity, to being a first quartile player, just, just not the very top, just first quartile, um, uh, that generally is going to be sufficient to rise somewhere between 10 and 20 spots in our ranking of 195 universities. So in, in relative terms, that's a huge, huge improvement. Uh, and we haven't changed the size of the university at all. We haven't changed their total budget, their total amount of dollars going into research, total number of faculty or anything like that. Uh, so that's um, that's a pretty big uh, payoff, I think, to being, um, you know, on the more productive side rather than on the less productive side. And I'll, I'll just add to that. One of the members of our team um, and I'm going to um, uh, we'll go through the, the other people uh, on the team. But one of them uh, was uh, David Overton, who was the former head of strategy at JCPenney and, and came out of a retail background, ex-McKinsey, ex-MIT. Um, uh, and one of the things that uh, really struck him here is that when you do this in the for-profit world, when you do these kind of metrics, uh, for example, in retail, they look at things like sales per square foot in, in bricks and mortar retail. Um, people are paying attention to these numbers. And so they're all pretty close. Um, a lot of these things, uh, everybody's very close to each other, com competing with each other. And here, what was shocking was big differences. And that is... You might say, well, that's shocking in a bad way. And we looked at it 
Uh, and uh, we were kind of salivating because it's shocking in a good way. It means, boy, is there room uh, to leapfrog, to get better, uh, to improve. There's a lot of room. It's hard if you are, you know, Macy's competing with um, some other uh, brick and mortar, um, Hudson Bay or whoever it is, um, brick and mortar company. Here, there's a lot of room to improve um, in leapfrog. So I wanted to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, Christian, and touch on it. Um, I wanted to ask, when you were evaluating innovation impact, did you notice any difference between the basic and applied research? So um, the big question, right? You can't spend time in tech transfer without getting into the whole basic applied. Um, I would say as somewhat ignorant outsiders, um, which is how we first approached this theme a decade ago, bringing together these focus groups, we increasingly found that it was a question that we didn't need to answer. We did not need to say one is worth more than the other. Um, we certainly saw lots of examples and a lot has been written. I think of Mariana Mazzucato talking a lot about how one thing leads to another and the role of uh, state funding of, of research. Gordon, others have, have written about some of these themes. We found that that if we, and this was part of getting back to impact, uh, a lot of basic research has big impact. And a, a an institution, the leadership of an institution or a governmental entity that's funding an inst institution can decide that one of the things that's really important to us in impact is something like uh, in, in uh, our ranking, uh, paper citations, um, which doesn't necessarily lead to license revenue but is important. Uh, we also look at, in thinking about innovation uh, impact, we look at uh, the amount of degrees that are conferred by the institutions. Now, we focus on STEM, uh, which again is, you know, you can argue, well, a philosophy uh, uh, a degree holder can change the world in many very impactful ways. Uh, and again, this is where it's a little imperfect. We found that, um, uh, well, that may be true, and we don't disagree. It's uh, easier to focus in on STEM, and that will capture a lot of what we're trying to capture in, in innovation impact, even if we leave out a few um, uh, philosophy majors who can tell us uh, uh, about more about the meaning of life or, or why we're here or what have you. Uh, so I think, again, going back to ba basic and applied, we think this um, sidesteps a very big debate, but but probably reinforces the theme that universities are important, research of any kind is important, and you as leaders need to be thinking about what kind of impact you want to create. Now, Christian, you also mentioned about talking further to the tech transfer office at the University of Florida. And in fact, the, your report included three case studies. You looked at a large university, a mid-sized and smaller. So in addition to the University of Florida, you also talked to Drexel and Brigham Young. Can you tell us a little bit about these case studies and overall what you thought they demonstrated? Yeah, sure, sure. I, we, as Christian said, we divided for productivity purposes, we divided the, the institutions up by size because we took the view, well, maybe productivity kind of means something different for the very large versus smaller. Um, note that every institution that files data with uh, Autumn by the standards of U.S. universities is, is at least most of them are at least kind of large. Uh, so there, nonetheless, we're talking about differences. So we, um, we did case studies on the number one ranked institution in each of our groups. And I think each of them had a slightly different story. As Christian said, uh, the uh, top ranking institution for productivity among the largest institutions was the University of Florida. Uh, I would argue that the big takeaway from our discussion with them was the benefit from having a really professional business-like tech transfer function. Uh, uh, I think that that among large institutions would be one of the flagships for getting those basic kind of business functions right. This is definitely a premier tech transfer function. They think of themselves as that. Other institutions look to them as that, at least the more knowledgeable ones. Um, so it was nice actually to see that our ranking kind of confirmed what is uh, is actually kind of understood out there, uh, you know, qualitatively, anecdotally. Within the mid-sized group, uh, our number one ranking institution um, uh, is Drexel University in Philadelphia. And that's a little bit of a different story. I would argue that Drexel uh, is a story about the power of really motivated leadership because Drexel um, uh, appointed a, a president who really came from outside academia in the 1990s. And this president um, was um, uh, really pivotal 
in in just a very very ambitious guy and making big changes in the university. But among other things, there was this very explicit focus on increasing the innovation. He didn't use those terms, but the innovation impact of the university. And he kind of had that infuse everything. And we've not only talked to the tech transfer people, but we've also talked to like faculty and former faculty of the place. And it's very clear um, uh, that that culture did, in a sense, infuse everything. Um, so leadership can make a huge, a huge difference. And in the in the smaller group, uh, again, not necessarily the smallest institutions ever, but the smallest of the ones that report, the number one performer for productivity is Brigham Young uh, in Provo, Utah. And Brigham Young actually has a relatively small, though very good tech transfer function. Um, but I think the takeaway here was about culture. I think this is a this is a case of an institution that is part of a larger uh, ecosystem, a larger innovation ecosystem in what they call the Silicon Slopes area, Provo to to Salt Lake City and on to to Park City and so forth. Um, and um, and I think this is an institution that has really tried to get the cultural things right. Uh, just literally, how what is the culture around being a student there or a faculty member? It's very bottom up, if you will. Um, and um, and I and I they themselves pointed out to us. So I'm not making a kind of religious statement here, but they pointed out that there is a benefit that comes from the fact that the institution, um, faculty, and students overwhelmingly are uh, people in the LDS. Latter-day Saints religious group, again, not making a religious point, but there is a cultural point here, and that is you have an institution that cr has created a lot of, of sense of we're all kind of on the same team here, we're all trying to succeed together, and has been very, very good at networking inside the institution and to venture capitalists and business people outside the institution in the region, uh, and that culture has paid off just absolutely tremendously. Lisa, if I if I may, I'll I'll just add in on this theme of of leadership because it's it really is so critical to all of this. And I hope uh, I know that a lot of listeners are tech transfer professionals, but um, if you're struggling to get this in front of higher ups, uh, getting your work and 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 what you do day in and day out to higher ups, uh, hopefully this is more ammunition. Um, the the Drexel story, you know, I'm reminded of a non-tech transfer story, which is the Northeastern uh, University story, which uh, a lot of people are familiar with in this group, um, where you had a, a well-known but really kind of a regional commuter school that decided it was going to reinvent itself. Um, it um, it it because of leadership decided it was going going to really focus on U.S. news um, rankings and get itself up the rankings. Uh, and this real devotion to that ranking, whether you like it or not, unleashed all kinds of re resources, reinvention of the university, changed in many ways the, the look and feel of the city of Boston because of, of buildings that went up um, and the, the whole way that the, the university fits into the Massachusetts ecosystem. Okay, so that was, again, a result of single-minded leadership. What we, again, is these kind of, and I'll speak for the Opus Fabio people, or at, at least for myself, kind of uh, ignorant uh, outsiders looking at all of this, you can't, be, be, um, you can't miss being struck by how many leaders are talking about innovation, university leaders, board members. We've spoken to a lot of board members, uh, legislators. Everybody's talking about innovation. The president of the United States, leaders in other countries, innovation, innovation. So they're talking about it. And uh, if they're going to talk about it and if they're going to put a lot of money into it, they ought to be thinking about what are they trying to accomplish and how do they make it better? And so we don't necessarily know what the University of Florida or Drexel or one of the lower universities here, University of Georgia or Rice or whoever, what they should be trying to accomplish. But their leaders should really be thinking about innovation, uh, not just as one cliche, but as our one plus one or, 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 or canceling cliches of, of impact. What are they actually trying to accomplish? How do you measure it? If you don't like the way we're measuring it, make a better mousetrap, measure it uh, better than we do, but, but get better. Christian, before I go on, I wanted to see, did you have anything else you wanted to add about the rankings of the midsize and smaller universities? Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. So the mid-sized research universities, uh, Drexel was first. Um, and I'll say for me, uh, I was not especially familiar with Drexel. I spent a lot of time on the East Coast and um, uh, it was not, uh, it was a surprise to me and really, really interesting story there. Uh, University of New Mexico, uh, number two. Princeton, number three. So isn't that an interesting little pairing? Uh, University of New Mexico ahead of Princeton. 
uh, Carnegie Mellon for University of Central Florida, University of New Hampshire, University of Houston, Washington State, Rice, and Temple. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, was a uh, head cheerleader at Washington State, a male uh, cheerleader at Washington State University, and is uh, he uh, uh, bleeds red, I guess you would say, but uh, he is cougar all the way. And I went to Rice, and uh, uh, that's quite a little pairing right there at eight and nine. Uh, really nice showing by Washington State. Uh, and then among smaller research universities, Colin already talked about BYU. Uh, number two is um, a, another system, or at least most of a system, University of Wisconsin, the WISIS uh, system. Uh, number three, Northern Illinois. Uh, four, Duquesne. Five, Creighton. Six, Ball State. Seven, Stevens Institute. Eight, uh, UNC Charlotte. Nine, University of North Florida. And 10, East Carolina University. Um, probably, I don't know that we need to go through them, but uh, probably worth mentioning the top uh uh, institution for medical schools and for healthcare institutions. Uh, so from pure medical schools, and this is because of how they report, number one was the Univers University of North Texas Health Sciences Center, uh, which reports uh, independently of the University of North Texas, even though they are part of that system. So we treated them as a pure uh, medical, uh, medical school. And then uh, among pure research institutions, um, uh, number one was Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, yeah. which is uh, uh, a really interesting long, uh, uh, long story as well. And if you don't know Cold Spring, uh, Google it, uh, uh, look it up in Wikipedia because they are a, a really interesting story. So that was uh, number one as well. Um, do look through these rankings, get the report, because there are plenty of surprises. Um, uh, institutes you would think would be higher that aren't, institutions that you would uh, think are lower uh, and are higher. So. So now that we've talked about the rankings, can you tell us what you both learned about why some universities are so much more productive than others in creating innovation impact? Sure, Lisa. We wanted to do two things in this report. One we've been talking about, which is produce the ranking and just to try to um, kind of analyze the data that's out there and articulate a way of thinking about innovation impact. But we also wanted to look at the determinants. We wanted to look at factors that actually influence how productive some institutions or why some are so productive and some others are, are less so. Uh, so what we did there basically was just do a lot of quantitative uh, statistical work uh, to look at a wide variety of variables. And we identified a number that really did make a difference. So let me, let me just speak to the highlights. Um, number one. Um, the size of the university as measured by research spending is uh, inversely related to how productive it is. Size is the enemy, in some sense, of high uh, innovation impact productivity. Uh, we didn't really see that coming, but I think that has some really interesting implications. If, if you're talking, if, if, if someone is listening today is, is at a very large institution that may not score so high, uh, I think it'd be very interesting for them to think about what is it about very large size that maybe stands in the way of being very productive. Um, we speculate some about it in the report, whether it's kind of the, you know, too much bureaucracy and so forth. It's a little bit hard to tell. Um, can't We don't really have the answer to that, but it's an important point. But there is another implication, and that is uh, small institutions should not despair. Uh, they may not be able to, um, you know, double or raise by 10x their research spending anytime soon, but they definitely can increase their productivity uh, with the same number of dollars by getting some basic things right. So that's and, the and they can and they can wave that uh, productivity ranking in the front of uh, their their uh, big donors uh, if they're a state institution in front of uh, legislators and say uh, we are worth investing in because we have very good productivity. Totally agree. Uh, Second of all, um, the place where a university is, the metropolitan area where it is. Um, of course, most universities can't really help that very much. Uh, they're not likely to move. But um, but what do we see? We see, probably not surprisingly, that larger metropolitan areas tend to produce more universities with higher innovation impact productivity than smaller metropolitan areas. It's probably good to be in a bigger city around more business people, more venture capitalists, more of what we in economics call agglomeration economies, just productivity benefits from being in a big, concentrated, high energy place. But actually, um, but another thing about the metro areas that I really want to call attention to, because we've never seen this, the following point in any study before, metropolitan areas that have a larger foreign born or immigrant population tend to have universities with higher innovation impact productivity. Um, and that is independent of size, okay? 
of the size of the metropolitan area or size of the university. Um, that should tell you something about the hot debates we're having in America around immigration. Uh, if you want to have really innovation, uh, really innovative um, universities in your uh, city, and you're the mayor, say, you should be competing ferociously for human talent wherever it comes from in the world, including uh, immigrant talent. And we would love love for people to, to dive into this further. Uh, I think uh, this opens up lots of questions and things to be thinking about in the broader um, uh, immigration debate, but also the themes of uh, cities and and um, uh, and ecosystems. Yeah, I was really struck by that when I read the report. That was something I was not expecting to read. So I agree with you. We didn't know what the result would be. We threw a lot of variables into the mix. Uh, I, I will say at the George W. Bush Institute, we have a, a program on immigration reform. President Bush has recently published a book with paintings of immigrants that calls for comprehensive immigration reform. So this is close to our hearts. And the fact that our result turned out the way it did quantitatively uh, was uh, something we're, we're, we're proud of. We think it's an important contribution um, because it's part of a larger discussion about how immigrants have always done and will continue to help make America great. It will, they will continue to help contribute to our innovation ecosystems, our startup cultures, and in countless other, other ways that are beyond the scope of this discussion. So that's the second point. Third point, and I think this is really, um, uh, I just have two more points, Lisa. The third point, uh, hopefully your tech transfer uh, listeners will pay some attention to this one. Um, the size and professional background and policies of the tech transfer office make a difference, okay? Just the size alone, the number of employees is quite predictive. Now, you could, of, of productivity. So I'm sure the people running the tech transfer offices hopefully are happy to hear that, but, there's, it, but the, the results are more striking even than it sounds because you might think, well, if a, if a, a relatively larger tech transfer office May other things equal, other things equal, be fairly productive at doing things that tech transfer offices do, uh, such as file for patents, for example, right, or uh, create licensing agreements with outside companies. So, okay, that's not so surprising. But perhaps more surprising is that the size of the tech transfer office is actually predictive of the university's productivity at creating innovation impact in ways that aren't the direct province of the tech transfer office, like paper citations for research by the, by the university's researchers and patent citations of the university's work. Um, uh, why in the world would that be? Because the tech transfer people clearly can't turn any knobs to create better research that is more heavily cited or more, or, or more cited in people in, in outside companies' patents. And we speculate, we can't prove, but we speculate that um, a, a really, maybe a relatively large or at least very effective tech transfer office has indirect benefits, uh, that it might, for example, have the benefit of creating a culture that in turn attracts great researchers, which in turn results in uh, the, the institution as a whole having higher innovation impact uh, productivity. And it might also be the case that the very, the very kind of institution that has a large, well-staffed and well-functioning tech transfer office is the kind that gets a lot of other stuff right too. In any case, that tells us that policy matters. Um, uh, how the universities run their affairs has a lot of impact on the, these variables that might at some point, I mean, it, it's possible that a university president might think some of this is outside of my control, but it's not. You know, I'll just say this was a really uplifting finding because you you go into this um, thinking about wanting all of these places to be wonderful and to, to have an opportunity to get better. Um, and then you say, well, yeah, but what about a university that is not in New York and is not in Boston and is not in Silicon Valley? They're um, somewhere where the elite coastals would say the, the, in the flyover. There's nothing we can do. Or even in uh, another country, and I, I do want to talk a little bit about other countries, but uh, in, a, in a small, smaller country, in Colombia uh, or in uh, um, uh, Belgium, uh, you can't change where uh, your university is. The University of Nebraska cannot be in New York City. Um, it's going to be in Lincoln, or at least the main campus is going to be in Lincoln. Um, and so when you see that there is something that is actionable, something that can actually be done by the university leadership um, to affect all of this innovation impact, 
uh, that's pretty cool. That's a, a, a source of great optimism. I think so, too. And I think if there's one sentence we wrote in this uh, paper that I'd love to uh, see quoted out there, uh, it's, it's the following. We conclude that the universities that achieve the greatest innovation impact are the ones which choose to do so. Lots of choices here. I do want to make one fourth point, and this might be less popular among some listeners because of the, the direction things have gone. But we also looked at the, the share of total research spending that is funded by industry partners, by industry deals. Um, and our finding is that having a relatively high percentage funded by industry is a negative predictor for innovation impact productivity. Believe me, we did not come into this with any preconceived notions, and we had absolutely no agenda or any reason to take a view on this. It's just where the data lead us. And uh, again, there's there's the obvious and the not so obvious. Okay, maybe it's obvious that if a relatively large, if a university has a relatively large share of funding from industry, that might, for example, mean that it's going to create fewer spin out companies because the research is going into established companies that could fund that research as opposed to the new company that hasn't been started yet. That's logical. Um, what is maybe unexpected is that having a relatively large industry funding share is also a negative predictor, again, of all the non-obvious output variables. It's a negative predictor of the, the, of the um, licensing revenues. Uh, it's a negative predictor of paper citations and patent citations and STEM graduates. Um, and so um, that that begs some pretty big questions. Now, I do want to say about this data, kind of a caveat here. Um, uh, it is important to understand what's really going on in your data set, you know, when you're writing about data. And in this case, the typical percentage of total research that was funded by industry is not a very large percentage. I think it was about 6%, okay? And most institutions don't get that much bigger than that. So the ones that are well into the teens or the 20s or beyond, it's a pretty small number. It's kind of an outlying group. Um, and I will tell you, nothing against those institutions, but the outlying group does not include any really high performers, either for overall innovation impact in our ranking or for innovation impact productivity. But nonetheless, I think it should at least raise the question. Um, we don't know how to interpret it exactly, but I would suggest the following. I'm going to purely speculate here. And that is that the, the world of innovation, the innovation ecosystems out there, that it's a, it's a very complex and specialized business. And it may well be that it functions best when everyone is in some sense doing the thing that they're best at, um, uh, you know, answering their kind of highest and best calling, if you will. And it may well be that a world in which um, university researchers, the vast majority of the time, are better at things that are closer to what we would call basic research, and people actually employed in industry are on average better at what we do at what we call applied or product development type research. That may well that may well be right, and it may well be that you can't force something into a a, a state that is just a little bit, you know, doesn't quite come naturally. So um, that's that's our speculation. Can't prove it. And I'll I'll add to that. Um, at OpenStopia, we spend a lot of time uh, talking, as I've mentioned, to tech transfer people and leaders at universities across the country, and also to professors. And we know that a lot of universities are talking about uh, industry-sponsored research as the the kind of holy grail. We're going to solve our our challenges of getting more innovation impact, even if they don't use that that term. Uh, by getting more uh, research dollars from industry. So we, we know that a lot of people talk about that. And so again, very surprising uh, finding. Uh, one of the things we've long wanted to do, we've not done it, is uh, a survey of faculty, but anecdotally, and again, this goes back into the realm of speculation and, and anecdote, um, we've heard a lot of um, kind of rock star researchers at different universities uh, independently tell us that Industry industry sponsored research can be much more flat feeling. Uh, the interactions aren't as rich as they would like them to be, um, and uh, the the collaboration isn't as uh, rich as they would like it to be. Uh, so it could be a question of motivation or the applied kind of more applied uh, uh, kinds of research, as Colin was referring to, and and it could be this kind of uh, cultural thing of those projects are just not as dynamic as some of the other projects they're they're working on. So I would add that we are we find ourselves 
Lisa, I think in this um, this world, we seem to have uh, evolved a system in which a, a, a real, not all, but a very significant part of the kind of the basic research that pushes forward the frontiers of knowledge in our society do actually happen within higher ed institutions. Uh, uh, typically uh, nonprofit, in many, many cases public sector uh, owned, um, and yet the product development that goes on out there uh, is overwhelmingly for-profit private sector, whether it's big companies or small venture capital backed or whatever. That's the world we find ourselves in. And, um, and, and I don't know that anyone has any good ideas for overthrowing that world. That seems like the world. New to tech transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for tech transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.